Hello and welcome back to another episode of Losing Part of Me. In this episode, I get to chat with my very beautiful friend and coach, Mary Hyatt. Mary and I have been friends for a super long time and she has been kind of instrumental in this journey as well. Like most of the people who I've had on have been instrumental. She started coaching me years back and unbeknownst to me, understood fairly quickly that there was a problem. And therefore, when I was able to share with Mary that there was a problem and I stopped, it wasn't a surprise to her. And actually, some of the stuff that Mary and I have done over the time of working together and being friends, now I can look back and go, that was instrumental, that was instrumental. So Mary and I talk about trauma and how it's held in the body and how it can affect us. And if you have listened to the episode where I talk about things that help me to stop, you will know that I mentioned that in the conversations about a book that I read with Gabor Mate. So if you haven't listened to that, do do go and check that out. But we have this conversation about trauma and how it works and how it gets trapped in our bodies. And one of the things that I did with Mary really early doors was to start to learn to love my body, which seems maybe like it's unrelated to stopping drinking. But actually, if I didn't love myself and love my body and give it the respect it deserved, I don't think I could have ever stopped because one of the reasons I stopped was because I love myself and because I care for my body and I want to treat it properly. So that was really insightful for me. But the other thing that was awesome about this conversation was Mary's own experience with living with someone or being with someone who has an addiction and how it was from her point of view and how she had to watch what she did as that other person, which is which was fascinating because the interview I did with my husband, they both came at it from very different directions. So that was really interesting to get two different views of someone who was with someone with an addiction. So it's a really, really cool conversation. I really enjoyed having her on. I knew that she would share stuff that really helped me open my mind and understand And I know she'll do the same for you. I will be making sure that we tag her into everything on Instagram so that you can find us. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Here's the lovely Mary Hyatt. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait for this conversation. I mean, this is, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. Me neither. I I was thinking about this before we recorded and I was thinking about how what's lovely about most people who are being interviewed on this podcast is people that have directly had something to do with me and my sober journey. And I was thinking about the time we were in Nashville and this was like, I think it was before lockdown, I think, where we went to the ice hockey game and you and I were having a conversation about, because we had talked previously already about um, intuitive eating. And 
I had obviously said something to elude the fact of the drinking and you and I had had this conversation at the ice hockey of like, well, what if when you drink, you really savor it and you really enjoy it and you really kind of try and slowly do it. And, and rather than just like downing the drinks, you really take patience and time over it. And it's interesting that I can remember that conversation because it just kind of comes back to me of, oh God, it was a problem then. Like, Mm. you know, that conversation was years ago and and obviously something was playing on my mind to even start that conversation with you. Um, yeah. And it just, and and when I think about the journey and, and actually one thing I want to talk about before we get on with what we're going to talk about is when I said to you that I was stopping and shared with you, not necessarily to the degree on why, but like I alluded to the fact of there's a problem. Did you, yeah. you didn't seem surprised. How honest, how honest can I be on here? <laughs> you can be really honest, honestly, really honest. Well, obviously, so we've had, you know, our relationship goes back really far, right? Mm-hmm. So we had a coaching relationship and then we developed a friendship. And yep. so I got to know you on a really intimate level from the, from the get go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Which is unique. I think for friends, it sort of like takes yeah. you a while to sort of build up and you see like little things in their life. And then, you know, you don't ever really see the full picture. But being your coach for the beginning of our relationship, you showed me everything, right? Yeah. Like like the the beauty about a um a coaching client relationship, it's a really safe space mm. to be vulnerable, to share all of the the ugly bits that maybe you wouldn't even share with a friend or a spouse or whatever. Like there's something that's sacred about that relationship, like a mm. like a priest or yeah. a therapist or something, yeah. you know. And so I feel like I, even walking through the intuitive eating journey with you, I noticed that like you would, you would share these little bits of information and it was sort of like painting a picture for me. And Mm. I would get a little bit of tidbit of information and a little bit of tidbit of information. And obviously we had spent time together, right? Like I came to London, you came Mm. to, to Nashville. And so I witnessed your mm. behavior. I witnessed your drinking mm. in person. And then also just kind of your own admissions, right? Like your own mm. sharing of, of your journey. And so I had put together like, oh, this is, she drinks a lot. Mm. Now I knew that based on our conversations, you weren't necessarily ready to, to mm. be in that place where you called yourself an addict or that you maybe would want to start going to recovery. Mm. But from the outside looking in and having done my own flip side of the recovery journey, mm-hmm. right. Of being with an addict, mm. I was like, and going to meetings, I knew the addict behavior. I knew sort of the ticked boxes that would amount to somebody saying, Hey, my life is unmanageable. Step one, admitting mm-hmm. that we have a problem. My life has yeah. become unmanageable. I had seen the, I had seen that in work at mm-hmm. work in your life, but with any addict, with any overindulgence, with anything that we're working on, it we I know as a coach, it has to be your own, like you have to own it for yourself. Your friends, your family could see it all day long. Yeah. But until you're willing to admit it, yeah. you know, but but when you shared that with me, I was not surprised at all. And I I remember thinking, 
oh, thank God, because I love you so much that it was just like, like, I was like, yes, you know, because I just thought, okay, this is the beginning of, of like a better existence, a better experience of life for you. So I was really proud of you, but not surprised at all. And I love what you just said for so many reasons, because one, the temptation for someone who maybe isn't as minded as you is to try and fix someone, to spot yeah. it and to get, to jump on it and go, there's a problem there. And you never once did that at mm-hmm. all through even coaching or friends or any of it. And I think for me, that's why you were one of the first people that I was happy to share it with because I didn't want the judgment and I knew I wouldn't get any judgment from you. And I knew that you would, you know, support me and be like, brilliant, amazing, but not go, you know, well, I knew, I knew for a long time. And that, that is one of the things that worries me that some people go, well, I always thought you drank too much. And it's like, that is so not helpful. Thank you very much. You know, but, but you didn't do any of that. And, and I think that's why, like I said, it's so awesome that you did know and you, you could see bits and, and put it all together, but you let me in my own time do what I need to do, which like you said, you know, we all know, and we must know people who do things that you think, oh, I wish they didn't do that. Or, or they are an addict and there's nothing you can do about it. You can be as angry and as cross and as frustrated as you like. And I guess from your experience of being on the other side, I guess that's some of the stuff that you learn, you know, through. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm just like the, it's so strong in me that our, on the flip side, and I would, I would take the role as like the codependent or the Mm. enabler. And usually in a dynamic of somebody who's the addict, you have the flip side, which is that person. Mm. And the only thing that we can do as, as that person is to draw boundaries and define our own unacceptable behavior for ourselves, mm. which is allowing certain things, allowing for certain behaviors to exist, putting up with whatever. And I think the benefit of our relationship is I didn't have any negative benefit or a negative um, experience of your drinking that directly affected the quality of my life. Like maybe yeah. a partner would yeah. or a child would. Right. So I, I was able to hold it more loosely mm. and didn't feel the need to need to like, Oh, I got to control her or make her stop because it wasn't impacting me. Yeah. Now, as, as having been the person that is the, um, enabler codependent, and mm. I am in my own version of recovery for that. Yeah. Then I had to say, hey, I'm unwilling to tolerate these behaviors in my partner. Yeah. And that, that was that was part of it is understanding like what am I willing to tolerate and not mm-hmm. tolerate? And knowing I cannot control the yeah. other person's behaviors. The only thing I can do is protect my own sanity and my own peace. Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, recovery terms. But I've done a lot of work around that because it's there's a there's a letting go of the fantasy for me that mm. I had around if I just did this, they would change. Yeah. If I could just contort myself in a way, maybe they wouldn't need to drink or they wouldn't yes. need to step out of the relationship. They wouldn't need to uh, overwork, whatever the addiction is. Like if I could change me, that will change them. And that is such an illusion and such a fantasy. So my work is to work on that fantasy all mm. the time. <laughs> yeah. And Do you know what? I'm so glad this came up because 
Paul and I did an interview the other day when we were recording this. Mm. We did it a couple of days ago and it was fascinating, okay? Almost to the point where I think he was very nervous, understandably, and some of the conversations we had were enlightening to me at the time. Like mm. I was like, oh, okay. And what's interesting then that I love the fact that you've come from a perspective that him and I didn't come from. So with him and I, and you will see this and know this because you know as well, but he had a vested interest in me drinking because right. we did it together. And even though he is not an addict, he does not have the same level of difficulty as I do with it, he still liked that relationship. He still liked the, sure. we go out, we have fun, we drink wine, we drink gin, like whatever it is. So actually for someone who might be listening to this that is either, an, you know, someone who is looking at it for themselves and thinking I have from myself, or maybe someone who's listening to it from a partner perspective, it's great to hear another version or another way in which a partner's affected by it. And that suddenly you take on a, I don't want to use the word problem or issue, I'm just trying to think, you take on a thought that you need to change in order to help them change. When the truth is, you know, as much as I need to say to Paul, you can still do everything you want. You can still be the person you want. You can still drink. You can still have the fun. You can still that. I can't and won't. As much as I need to keep me separate, you needed to keep yourself separate and go, I can't control what this other person does. And therefore I need to get and do my own work. Like it's so good. Yep. And it's, it's hard. And I have my own version of sobriety. Yeah. That's very different than your version of mm -hmm. sobriety. But I, I mean, I really kind of come from the place that we're all addicts. It mm. just shows up differently. And we're all trying to manage, like, I kind of go back to the two basic human needs that everybody has to mm. get love mm. and avoid pain. Yeah. Get love and avoid pain. And we do whatever we can do mm. to make sure that we get love and avoid pain. And so I'm doing my own version of that, my own addict mm. behavior. Mm. of that, which is codependency, yeah. which is trying to shape shift myself to make myself pleasing and mm. lovable and compliant and easy and whatever else to get that love. But it's, um, it can, it can turn into, if I'm not mm. in like reality, it can become very manipulative. Mm. It can feel like hyper alert where I'm always trying to manage the other person, like yeah. very controlling. So it's, I, I, abs I absolutely have to do my own work mm. in that. Yeah. And I love as well, the fact that you talked about, you know, you think that we all are addicts in some way or another, because I think one of the th things that I did struggle with, with AA meetings and this whole part of the world, the addiction part of the world is that it's so, cloak and dagger and it's so it's you know we they talk about and you'll probably remember the phrase better than I will but you know uh shame and by not sharing shame that it gets even stronger and right whereas if you share the shame then you kind of take the power out of it and I sometimes I think that's half the problem with addiction is that 
it is shrouded in, you know, even the word Alcoholics Anonymous. And I get it, totally get it. Like, obviously you don't want people going, oh, did you see so-and-so? Like, I totally get that. But there's almost a part of me that's like, the less we talk about it, the more we try and pull it in, the more we try and keep it a secret. One, the stronger it gets because you're keeping it a secret. And two, we're not having these open conversations and we're not talking about the fact of, and I agree with you, I think addiction is on a scale. And yeah. There are some people much further down the scale or much further along the scale than other people. Um, yeah. And I think bearing that in mind for me is now making me look at other things that I do. Because the same as you, like, it doesn't have to be a substance. It doesn't have to be a food right. or money or whatever it is. It can be so many different things. It's just if you're using something to try and make something else happen or not happen or avoid something, then it's like, mm, it's probably something going on there. So, yeah. yeah. But mm -hmm. what I wanted to get you on and talk about, and I'm so glad we talked about that because that was awesome, um, is when I first started coaching with you, and I remember this vividly, you said to me that I had had some trauma and I mm -hmm. was like, really? Mary, in my head, obviously I'd never said this to you at the time. Um, and you talked about yeah. big T and little t trauma, which was the first time I'd ever heard that term. And I didn't get it. I really didn't get it. And I didn't mm -hmm. think I had any trauma. I didn't think there was anything that I had a problem with. I thought that my life was pretty easy, pretty normal, pretty average. And then you were the one, uh, you're responsible for so many amazing things in my world, but you were the one who said, my mum passed away and it had been a couple of months and you said, I think you need some therapy. And and Mary knowing me and Mary being a friend, I was like, I'm going to take that as I probably need some therapy. And then obviously I started therapy and then in therapy over a long time, I started talking about all these things that happened in my world. And then suddenly my therapist started going, hang on a minute, like that's not normal. You know, that's not normal. You know, well, not that there's anything normal, but you know, that shouldn't have probably happened. And then I started to get the idea of, okay, well, maybe I have got some of these little T traumas and maybe there were points that are traumatic and are still sitting in me and still affecting me. And then I read Gabor Mate's book and then it all started to fall into place. And I think it was at that point that I could start to put together the pieces of something has happened and it doesn't have to be ginormous. And that might be why I do the things I do today. So I want to talk to you about trauma, which sounds like it's going to be such a fun conversation, but I assure you the way Mary <laughs> talks about it. Yeah. Everyone, let's talk about trauma. It's so fun. Uh, but the way Mary talks about it is going to be great. So where do you want to start? So I think we should start with what you were sharing earlier, this, the concept of big T and little T, because mm -hmm. I think what was so profound to you about that whole thing was your whole life, you had been under a misconception about what trauma was. Yeah. And they said, I don't have it. And I don't, and then if you aren't identifying with it, it's very hard to support mm. and want to learn tools to move through it in a different way. If it's like, oh, that's not me. Like I'm not mm. in that category. So there's a big difference and both matter. This is the exact same. Okay. So 
So big T and like capital T versus little T, lowercase T, big T is where you've experienced a almost like a catastrophic one moment, an event that happens in your life that alters your life altogether. You've witnessed somebody die in a very horrible way. You've been in a, a some sort of awful accident that has left you with disformity or, you know, chronic pain for the rest of your life, or you've, you know, um, been in war and, you know, have what we think of when we think of trauma as people who have, you know, complex PTSD or PTSD from war, um, experiencing a natural disaster, you know, wh whatever, but it's, it seems really extreme or a victim of rape or abuse in a really, um, horrible way. So if you don't really check off any of those boxes, you think, well, okay, then I should be fine. Like I don't have any of these issues. And what you experience, what I've experienced, what I would probably bet on the, you know, all of us have experienced little T traumas at some point and probably chronically over time. And that's kind of the difference is that there are these little microaggressions almost that build up within our nervous system over time that eventually tip our nervous system over. But there, it could be anything from uh, in middle school, high school being rejected by a boyfriend. It could be the way that your mother ignored your petition your request to meet a need that you had like mom could you come to this thing or um you know could you help me with this and she's like no maybe not even in an aggressive way but maybe she's a little bit more neglectful maybe she's just completely unaware she has her own drama going on so she can't focus on you or it could be you know from your father um it could be anything that essentially make sure nervous system go into that protective mode, fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And I like to kind of enter the, the nervous system that way to say, what state am I in most often? How do I, how do I operate through life? My, my survival instinct, what do I do to make sure that I stay safe and avoid pain? And so we look at the kind of the four different ways, fight, so this could be somebody that that literally, you know, is very aggressive, but it could just be that you pick fights when something feels uncomfortable and everything feels at peace. Maybe you were used to growing up in a chaotic family where there was a lot of drama. And so your way of relating and creating connection is to instigate, is to lash out, is to um, so much as, you know, little comments, side comments mm -hmm. to full on rage, right? Yeah. Fight, flight, fleeing flight means we're avoiders, right? So when things get uncomfortable, we leave the situation. So let's say we heard our parents arguing and we went to our bedroom. We um, experienced something that felt um, too, too overstimulating, overwhelming. We, we left, you know, we get out of the situation and we flee fight, flight, freeze. And this would be the more of the um, extreme response. And this, we tend to see this show up more often in more acute cases of trauma would be, I'm, I, I literally can't move. Mm. I shut down. Um, this is called dorsal vagal. And that's kind of a um, polyvagal term as it relates to trauma. We, we literally like to protect yep. ourselves. It's almost like we play dead. So this is where we see depression come in. 
um, apathy, lack of interest, um, the inability to focus our thoughts and focus on things. We procrastinate. We can't, we can't move the needle. You know, it's like, we can't do it. That would be a freeze response. And then we have fawn. This is, this is me. And this is where we, in order to stay safe, we will please, yeah. we will flirt. We will, um, be pleasing in our behaviors and our appearance and, um, be the best friend, be the star student, be the, um, teacher's pet, whatever it is to be likable. And that is what keeps us safe. But that is an absolute trauma response. So all of these fight, flight, freezer, fawn are the four trauma responses. And so when you start to see your own behaviors through this lens and you go, okay, am I anxious? Am I avoidant? Am I a fawner? Am I a freezer? You know, like, how do I behave? It's indicative of that is a trauma response given what we have experienced in our lives up until now. It is our best chance for avoiding pain mm. and getting love. Yes. So staying safe, essentially. And that shows up in a myriad of different ways, but it creates over time a very dysregulated nervous system where we kind of get stuck in this survival response and we don't know how to trust ourselves, yeah, trust our environments, feel um, our emotions, hang with discomfort, uh, be in our bodies. You know, we, we learn all these ways to leave the moment, to escape the moment, to cope with the, the from the moment, to numb out numbing out, you know, again, that's a freeze response. All of these are responses to these micro little, little T's that we've experienced in our life. And that is unique to everybody, but I'd venture to say everybody has their own story and version of that. And the way you just described that was brilliant because when you went through, because when you think of those responses of, you know, fight, flight, freeze or fawn, like you, you imagine them in big scenarios like there's there's a fight a physical fight somewhere like what do you do you know there is a major thing which of those massive things do you do whereas actually the way you described it I could see almost in everyday things how you might bring some of those in and the other thing that I really loved about that which makes me feel better and I'm constantly finding information that makes me go, oh, that makes sense. Like that really, really makes sense. One of the things that I had trouble with is, and I remember saying this to you and we had a conversation that because I loved the part of why I wanted to drink was to numb out. And that is the bit that I guess I miss that, you know, I don't have a way to step off the world when things don't get, like they get a bit hard, but that was the problem it never got really hard. So of course, in my head, I'm like, why am I trying to numb out when my life is not that horrific by any stretch of imagination? And I, we were at your house and I remember saying to you in front of Paul and you paused us and, and said, you know, do you hear what she said, Paul? I remember saying to you, I hope that Paul doesn't think that the reason I want to numb out is because of him or our life or us. And, and you did, you were like, did you hear? And he's like, no, I know. And, and he, you know, almost made him say back to me, no, I know that's not the reason, but that helps me understand why. And maybe someone else listening to this, why maybe you're still, you know, your nervous system is triggered by something that I guess maybe it shouldn't be. Is that, is does that make well, sense? Well, I wouldn't say shouldn't be, but it's, um, it's like a pairing. Mm -hmm. that gets 
almost incorrectly uh, paired up. And when I say incorrectly, I mean, it's um, not true reality. So it feels real, yeah, but it's not true. So that feeling real part is that there's something familiar in my environment and the tone that somebody Mm -hmm. is speaking to me in and the expression, the facial expression that they are demonstrating in a certain behavior. If any of that could be a smell, it could be a song, it could be, I mean, literally anything is familiar to one of those little T moments in our past. The nervous system goes, oh, I know what this is. And it does what it knows to do, which is to protect us. So it, it kind of sends out, you know, the army and it says, okay, alert, alert. Let's turn on the survival mode. And we go into that hyperactive, hyper alert, hyper responsive state. And all of a sudden we are responding to things that aren't really true. Like it's, it feels real, but it's not true, but it's real inside of our bodies. The sensations are the same. It's firing off the same neurotransmitters. Like everything in our body goes into this very familiar alert state. And then we go into our behaviors. And so part of that is it's automatic, right? Like it's just happening without our consciousness being aware of it. So part of the work in, I think in recovery, and this is not explicitly like within AA or anything like that, but just kind of broader recovery in our own healing is learning how to identify and become aware of when we get activated. So when our nervous system, we might not even know the source of it, but when our nervous system goes, be do, be do, be do, like it's not safe. Right. And I want to get so familiar with that sensation in my body. Like when I get activated or another word that gets thrown around a lot is triggered. Yeah. I'm triggered by the word triggered though. So <laughs> it's it's definitely being overused now, I think. I feel I feel like it's it's helpful at the beginning. Yeah. So I like to say activated because that's really what's happening within our nervous mm-hmm. system. So when yeah. I get activated, I start sweating, mm-hmm. my heart starts racing, I feel sick to my stomach. Um, I, I start noticing my behaviors of pleasing or overdoing or overcompensating or, you know, however I fawn out. Um, when I start noticing that my first step is to become aware of that Yeah. so that I can help to self-regulate. And part of recovery is learning how to tolerate more discomfort So the reason you go to drinking, the reason I scroll social media, the reason I might pick a fight, the reason I might turn my laptop on and start working again, or, you know, fill in the blank Mm -hmm. is because I'm unwilling to sit with and be with the discomfort that is arising within my body. Because what's happening when I'm not aware and conscious is threat, 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 not safe, not safe, not safe, escape, protect put the fire out as quickly as possible, mm-hmm. fight, flight, freezer, fawn. Yeah. So my work, your work, our work is to learn how to be with the parts of ourselves that we normally abandon mm. and run from. Yeah. That when we say I'm unwilling to be with this feeling, I'm unwilling to feel this sensation within my body. I'm unwilling to sit with the fear, the doubt, the shame, the the guilt, the grief, whatever it is, 
learning how to be with what's here, mm -hmm. be with our emotions and create a level of tolerance because it's like, it doesn't just automatically go away when we're aware of it. It's like sitting with this part of ourselves that is like almost having a, a temper tantrum or raging yeah. inside or, you know, and, and you know exactly what this yeah. feels like in the body, right? Yeah. And most people go, I can't tolerate, I can't tolerate. Let me, let me turn mm. this off so quickly. So huge work is learning how to stretch our window of tolerance mm. to be with what's here. And mm. then to meet that with a lot of compassion and curiosity mm. And we can talk about that more later, but that those are kind of the beginning steps of recovery really is awareness and mm. learning to be with the discomfort. So while you were saying all that, I was thinking about a scenario that again involves you and is one that we can talk about. You did a retreat and I came to it and it yeah. was, was it October 22? Was it October or September? It was October. Yeah. October 22. It was, 22. It was right on the cusp. Yeah. 22. Yeah. So I came to this retreat and it was a healing retreat that Mary put on. And I, in my head, just wanted to go because it's Mary's thing. And I knew it'd be amazing and beautiful and phenomenal. And I hadn't actually thought about any work that I might be doing on myself. I knew I would be, but I hadn't really given it any thought. And when we get there, we're in this beautiful house, this stunning, stunning house in the middle of nowhere. And I have my own room, which I requested as it were you know you decided whether you wanted to share or not and I thought I don't want to share with someone else I have my own room and the minute I got in the room I got scared okay and I didn't want to talk about it and I didn't want to like because I was like oh okay this uh, this is weird like I'm in a stunning place and I remember saying to Paul before he left because they dropped us off didn't they or um yeah, uh, yeah uh, and and he come and bought my stuff up and he's like this is amazing I was like I don't know if I like it and I immediately started to get nervous and mm -hmm. And basically, to cut a really long story short, during that time, I found myself, one, because it was a space to look at this stuff, that not only did I find myself admitting that I was so scared, but also saw exactly what I was doing, because this was right before I stopped in 2023. So I, this was probably like one of the many little dents in the thing that kind of made me go, hang on a minute. Cause then I got absolutely drunk every night. Yeah. That was how I got to sleep. And even then it didn't help me. Mm. And one of the things in my past is that I lived in a house that I was terrified of my entire life, my entire childhood. My mum said it was haunted. It didn't feel good. Even now as an adult, I go into that house and I wouldn't stay there on my own. But I had to go in on my own the other week and I didn't like it. Like mm. even as a grown adult going, Teresa, there's nothing wrong. The feeling's wrong or whatever. But as a child, little Teresa spent her entire childhood terrified. Yeah. And therefore something made me go into that beautiful room in this beautiful place, doing this beautiful experience that I couldn't talk about, I couldn't explain, but I was petrified. Mm. And even though we did some of the work, which of course, and this was the other thing I wanted to say is that discomfort is hell on earth. Like yeah. it can be, it can be horrific. And that's what it felt like. So then we were doing the work in the day. I was feeling the discomfort in the day. And then by the evening or by what looked like a respectable time, because I was with people that didn't know me, 
I then went, thank God I can now drink and I can now shove yeah. that right down and forget about it. Get some relief. Mm. And that's exactly what I was doing. Mm-hmm. But I was absolutely petrified. And yet there's no reasonable exp- explanation as to why I should have been so scared. But something right. in my body went, I don't like this. Well, and that's, you know, it's like, it feels real, but it's not true. It goes back mm-hmm. to that thing. And the, the, the crazy thing about the nervous system is there's no timeline. It doesn't have like a biological clock connected to it. So if something, again, it could be the way a chair was positioned. It could be the shape of the room. It could be the smell of the room. It could, it could have been a million things. Again, your nervous system is always, and we need this, right? This is not a bad thing. This is actually a really positive thing. We're, it's looking for danger. And so when it, you know, sees, smells, touches, hears, whatever, something that feels familiar, it's going to alert again, the body to go into that hyperdrive, that nervous system response, that survival response to protect you. So it's good, but it wasn't actually needed in real life in that moment, right? It was like an over-exaggerated response for what you were really dealing with. And yet, the response in the body is still very real, right? The story Mm. that the body is holding is your experience of that moment. Like the anxiety that crept up, the panic, that the fear that came, like that was your experience of that moment. And it was awful. And so instead of, and this would be a skill you would learn over time, right? Instead of in that moment going, hi, fear. Oh, it's like almost like you could go back and talk to that little Teresa say, Hey, Hey girl, like, I know you're really scared. Do you want to talk about it? Or can I sit with you? And instead of trying to avoid the sensation or pretend that it's not there or just white knuckle it until it was an appropriate time to start drinking, which only amplifies, like imagine a little kid that's going, I'm really afraid. And you're going, can't listen to you. Can't listen to you. Don't, I don't want to hear you. Right. And then the alcohol or whatever insert behavior would only silence that part of you more. That's going to amplify it. Right. If a kid's not being heard, what are they going to do? They're going to have a temper tantrum. Listen to me, mommy. You know, right. So, what we learn is how to become a really good parent to our inner child, the part that is afraid in us, and let them tell us why they're afraid okay, tell, tell me more. Tell me more. I want to know, like, what's, what, you know, why are you afraid? You know, it's scary. Talk to me. And that requires slowing down. It requires pausing. It requires tending to our tenderness. But when we do all of a sudden that part, that's, that's the part that's freaking out, right? That little version of ourselves that experienced something similar, that part has a chance to feel validated seen and heard. And then we can slow down and feel safe again. It's like we're helping that part of ourselves regulate and feel safe. And then that part can go, okay. And you can go as adult Teresa to your little Teresa. I'm right here with you. You're not alone. I'm going to be with you all night long. What do you need to feel safe? And little Teresa, it's like, literally you can have a dialogue. Little Teresa can say, well, you know, I need whatever. And you go, okay. I got you. I'm right here with you. You know, I'm not leaving you. And you and you get to reparent and reorient to a new experience with a familiar feeling. So you you change the narrative 
and you repair. It creates a moment of healing that repairs that old little T, you know, or potentially big T uh, trauma and you repair. And that's the gift of leaning into the discomfort versus trying to avoid it. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I wanted to touch on that you just said there. So the first thing is just to clarify so people know, I would never have even admitted that I was scared if we had not done the work we had done. So the fact that I had come halfway by going, and I remember getting really upset and because we were doing like a sharing bit with someone else in the room and and I remember being like, I'm so scared and I don't know why. And mm-hmm. and it, honestly, like to the point where I can think back to me and think, oh my goodness. But then that comes to my next point of thinking about the little parts is for me game changing because I think yeah. we often come from an adult part. And so the fear is there in our body with, you know, I'm and I, you know, I can feel it in a heartbeat. I can put myself back in that room, back in bed and feel the fear. And (laughs) yeah, yeah. that's really not going to make a fun afternoon. Um, But like, but the thing is, when I think about that as the adult, I go, what the hell is wrong with you? Sort yourself out. Like, that's ridiculous. And you can be so hard on yourself. But the minute you go, that's a little part of me. How would I talk to a young part of me? And obviously I have a a daughter who's 14 and, and now I could imagine what would I say to her if she was little? So that's one of the ways in which I can do it. But but just even thinking about a little you and a little part of you. So one of the things I want to ask about that is because, like I said, that little thing is so honestly has been a game changer for me, for the empathy side and for me to go, well, that makes perfect sense. And therefore, I'm not going to ball myself out and go, don't be an idiot. Why are you scared? Because a young version of me who experienced that would feel scared. And that makes perfect sense. I want to talk about the trauma and the body and because obviously all these feelings are coming from us, from the body. It's not our mind going, oh, I recognize this moment and this might be scary. Do you think that when we think of a little part of us, that that is at the point that got caught in our body? So there was a point of me at, I don't know, I seven, maybe a bit younger, that I can remember feeling like that. And is that when it almost gets trapped or do you know what, is that the right, um, the terminology might be wrong, but you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, right. So anytime, and this is true, I'm kind of making this hypothesis, I should say. So, you know, (laughs) don't, don't use the, I'm not like a science researcher. So sorry, I don't have the stats on this, but from what I have learned, um, anytime, we are unable or unwilling to feel what's here and to process through emotions, they get stored within the muscles, the tissues, and the fascia within our bodies. So a stress response, right, signals all of these, like a chemical reaction in the body. Our blood pressure goes up, we start sweating, cortisol gets fired, adrenaline gets fired, like all these things right? Go up. So when you're afraid, all of that's happening in your physiology. When we don't know how to, or again, are unwilling to 
complete that stress cycle with the body. So like there's a point where it bell curves and it peaks at the very top and it's intense. You've maybe feel, have felt this in like a panic attack or grief or whatever sadness when you kind of have that point where you just burst out in tears. If we don't allow ourselves that moment and don't sit with what we're really feeling, we can never come down the opposite side of that bell curve to the end where we experience relief. We've moved it out and through the body. We see this in animals all the time. The moment that let, let's say a possum, uh, uh, prey, you know, the possum is prey and let's say, um, I don't know what eats a possum, let's say coyote, um, comes on the scene. The possum is going to play dead because that is its best attempt to survive. And that would be like a freeze response. And so the coyote comes over, smells the possum and says, oh, this is dead and moves on. The minute that coyote moves out, then the possum, what it does is it shakes its physical body, like like a duck getting water off of its back. It shakes it all off and then it regulates its nervous system and it's just like, and it goes on its merry way. So there's something about moving the stress through our physical bodies that can be through movement, through breathing, through crying through sighing, through making uh, sounds. When we do that, it helps us to complete the th that cycle of stress. It gives it a, an out outlet. It allows for that steam, the pressure to be relieved from the kettle. And so what's so valuable about that is it, number one, just simply relieves the pressure and then we experience relief. But it also creates a sense of confidence that we can hang with ourselves during these really intense, difficult moments. Again, I'm willing to say to myself, I see you, I hear you, and it matters. When we don't do that, we basically hit that top of the bell curve and then we hit the eject button. Yeah. And everything gets put into our bodies, all that cortisol, all that adrenaline, all that energy and motion gets translated into and stored within our muscles, tissues, fibers of our bodies as, as frozen uh, tension and can get activated in, at any time. It's like these little memory capsules that get deposited within our within our bodies. And the body holds the score, like Vessel van der, van der Kolk's book, the body holds the score, it holds the memory. It, it knows every moment that we've been through in life that's challenging. And, and we'll wake up at any moment, like we think if we just avoid it, it'll disappear forever and we are never gonna have to deal with it. And unfortunately, I wish that were the case. That would be awesome, you yeah. know, but it doesn't work that way. No. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And it and it comes back up. So, and it usually comes back up through addiction, through sickness, through um, self-sabotage, you know, so in some point of our life um, or, you know, chronic illness, disease. So it, it absolutely holds, holds record of, all of that. Um, and so when we're, even when we're little and that's, and that's not because we're unwilling, that's because we don't know how, and that's because our parents never taught us how to be with it. Cause they didn't know. So there can be a lot of grace in all of that, but it still gets stored in the body. And I think that is the grace bit is so important. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, I think I told you that I, I found a letter I wrote to myself a year after being sober, which I then found a year when I was sober, which is amazing. And I'd written on this letter. And I think at this point, and this again was around October, 
um October was obviously a very pivotal month uh before yeah. I stopped in January but um it said it's not your fault it's not your fault and and I meant it whereas previously the younger version of me the petulant child version of me when uh my therapist had said to me it's not your fault I said you know I'm going to use that you know that basically the next time I pick up a drink I'm going to go not my fault and right. just drink it right and and I remember her saying to me no it's not your fault you're here where you are today and why you're doing what you're doing but you have got to take some ownership as to how you then change it going forward um yeah. So the other thing I wanted to touch on with what you just said was uh, one of the things that I talked about in one of the other episodes is my getting sober and basically how I didn't wake up on day one of being sober, jumping out of bed, going, woohoo, look how good I feel. And actually it took months and I totally underestimated that. I totally underestimated how difficult it would be. But I think now we're talking, one of the things that I'm thinking about is that's what I was learning to do all of that time. I was having the discomfort come and every time it came, which obviously was really flipping often because I had stopped, because I was drinking so much and because I'd stopped cold and gone, I've got to deal with this, that that's what was so exhausting. That's why I couldn't focus on anything else. Or this is what I think, you know, that maybe is why it took me months and months and months to mm. finally get to the point where I started feeling better. Because I guess pretty much that whole first few months, I was in fight or flight constantly. Like yeah. a feeling would come up and I'd have to deal with it. And dealing with it was exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have no, you have no capacity. No. Because you, you know, again, the eject button for you is it gets it gets challenging. Pour myself a drink. It gets louder. Pour myself a few more drinks. Right. So the the capacity to hold what's here, there was there was none. And so what you were doing over those months was building your capacity to hold to be with the discomfort. And that is, it's not easy. It's like you didn't drink because it was just so fun. You drank because you were avoiding those very feelings. And so, and it worked right to a certain, to a certain degree, it was, it was managing it, um, in a way that ultimately was causing havoc in your life, but it was, it was keeping those, dis those moments, those feelings of discomfort at bay. But what we know is you can't really do that forever. And so you did the really courageous, brave thing where you said, okay, this isn't going to be fun. And I think we all have to make this choice in one way or the other to choose the hard thing that's the right thing. And choosing the right thing is very rarely easy. It's usually incredibly inconvenient. It just sucks. Like this is why I say there's nothing sexy about healing. No, no. it's not. It's not Instagrammable. No, you know, like it's not doing some cold plunges and you know, meditating and doing ayahuasca, which I've done it all, you know, but it's like, that's the Instagram version. The real version is cold sweats. The real version is shaking on the floor, having a panic attack. The real version is wanting so badly to, to do my behavior and choosing to call a friend, call my sponsor, call my therapist, whatever, lean in to that feeling and 
the the dividends that that pays there is no better ROI than that in my opinion i mean it is like when you gain the confidence to stick with yourself to not self abandon and be with yourself when everything in you wants to run and avoid yourself and you say i love myself so much that i'm willing to stay when it's hard to lean in when i want to run away is it, it, that that confidence that comes with that is ultimate freedom. And yeah. to be able to trust yourself on that level is like, it is a game changer for your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I would imagine that now you probably feel like I can do freaking anything. Like, There's nothing like, I can't do. Like, yeah, and I trust I mean myself that. implicitly. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, you know, it's so funny how all of this stuff takes time. And I remember us having conversations again, right early doors when we first met about loving my body, about self-integrity, about trusting myself. And, and obviously it goes in and I think about it, but the problem was I was in, in such a destructive way that, that I couldn't, I couldn't do any of those things. And I also couldn't ever imagine feeling the confidence I feel today because I couldn't trust myself. Because when I said, I'm not going to drink tonight, I drank. And so then I'd think, well, everything you say is absolute bullshit because you said you were going to do it and you didn't. So I don't believe you when you say anything. I hated my body. I hated how I looked. I hated myself. I spoke to myself like I was dirt. And and again, I remember us having this conversation. I remember you talking to me about loving my body. And I thought, I don't know what the fuck you're on about. Like, I do not see how I'm ever going to do that. And I, ironically, ironically, at the point where I started to love my body was the biggest I've ever, ever been. Like weight wise, even like I've lost a bit of weight, but even now I'm still at the point of the heaviest chunk that I've ever been at. And like, to think that, I could feel the way I feel about me today is mind blowing, but you're right. I have, I know I have self-integrity now. I know when I say I'm going to do something, I do it. And I honestly feel like I could take on the world. Yeah. Yeah. It is. There's no better feeling. There's like literally, and I have to say too, this is something that I had to give myself so much grace for. And I tell my clients all the time is you don't have to want to do it. Mm. Like there are so many days that I'm making really, really hard choices that are the right choices. And I, in my mind, have a little bit of a temper tantrum, you know, it's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I feel sad for myself that I have to, it's so hard for me and, you know, all of that but I still show up for myself. And I say, you know what? I know you can, you can bitch and moan, you can cry, you can stomp your feet, but we're still going to do the thing, you know? And it's like in the follow through of actually doing it, it's like, that's what counts. So I just, I like to say that because it's not like doing these things. You're like, this is awesome. And this feels so freeing. And I, this feels amazing. Yay me. You're like, fuck this. Yeah. I don't want to do this. I want it to be easy again. Yeah. I just want to have that drink again. I just want to do the thing that doesn't require me, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, great. Let, let it rip, get mm-hmm. it out, but still do the thing. 
when I recorded that episode talking about what it was like getting sober, I actually kind of said in it, I feel bad. Like I'm really going, this is shit. Don't do it. Like, and I'm absolutely not saying that obviously, but, right. but it was, I also don't want to, I don't want to do the Instagram version of getting sober. And, and I think that is the, that's the truth. If you've really done the work, if it's really a problem, if you've really healed, you're not going up on Instagram going, hey, everybody, look what I've done. I feel amazing. I am yeah. 12 months in, well, actually 13 months in now, like I'm 13 months in and I'm only now at a point where I A, feel like well done me and B, feel like I can talk about it and I can share it because, you know, as well as anybody, like last year was basically what you were saying. It's curled up in yeah. a corner sobbing somewhere and that's what it felt like and it's not to say that that's not going to come again I know it is I know just last week I looked at wine which I haven't done in ages and thought to myself because I was on my own no one would know if I drank that and it mm. crossed my mind and I immediately caught it and went hang on a minute no 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 we're not even going there and told myself to keep walking and get my chocolate that I was getting instead but you know yeah like it's it's always going to take work. It's always going to be difficult, but the rewards are beyond what you can imagine by doing any of this work. Well, and I think the moment that you make peace with the fact that it mm. just is going to be hard, mm. it kind of releases that fantasy yeah. of I'm just going to do this and it's going to click and I'm going to feel amazing. And then every time it doesn't feel like that, you're frustrated and disappointed. It's like, suffering comes when we're not accepting reality. Mm. So being able to say, like, make peace with, I'm doing this and I'm probably not gonna like it. It's gonna be hard and that's okay because the truth is a lot of life is hard. Yeah. A lot of life is hard, at least 50%, probably more, mm. right? Like the, the fantasy we get in in any kind of addiction is thinking somehow we can bypass that. Yeah. And, and we yeah. can't, unfortunately, the human experience is one that, includes the really hard stuff, the aching, aching parts of life. And yet the beauty is when we show up for that, we also get to show up for all the beautiful parts of life. We get to show up for presence to be mm. like really here in 3D full color. Yeah. Like we get yeah. to, we get to experience life in such a different way. We're not just drunk all the time or mm. numbed out or, you know, mm. checked out. It's like, oh my God, I'm living again. Like that was my thing. Like yeah. when I was in my version of my own addiction, I wasn't living. I was managing. I was controlling. I was hypervigilant. I was, I was literally every second, you know, what's, what's he doing? What's he doing? Oh my gosh. Mm. Da, 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 da. Trying to tap dance, trying, not literally, although that yeah. would be funny. <laughs> my addiction um, is trying to tap dance. <laughs> yeah. My addiction is trying to tap dance, but basically contort myself, mm. you know, be, be pleasing, whatever to be loved. And that is hell on earth. That is its own version of prison. And so when I made peace with the fact that being in my own version of sobriety and recovery required that I sit with the discomfort mm -hmm. and that it was okay that it was hard. All of a sudden it was like, this is just hard now. It's just, it just, it just is hard, but I'm not suffering on top of it being hard. I'm not yeah. wishing it were different on top of it being hard. I'm not mm -hmm. angry on top of it being hard. It's like, I'm accepting reality, knowing that this is the best version of me choosing this, mm -hmm. this recovery. And it's opening doors. It's allowing for me to feel pleasure and joy and all of the things as well. Um, but that acceptance, that radical acceptance of the pain is 
hugely liberating, I think. Mary, I knew you would be amazing, as you always are. And even though I am very lucky to call your friend and we spend time together and we talk a lot, and every time you talk, there is like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, like absolute gold. So I really, really hope that anyone listening to this has has taken and just even if they take it and go it's not my fault mm. and they just take a little bit of love to themselves for where they are right now and the fact that you're even listening to this means you are well on the way to doing something absolutely mary thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast thank you thank you for your bravery in having this conversation and inviting me into it it's big and it's brave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.